This week's episode of Discovering Trek is brought to you exclusively by Fansets. Discover a whole new universe of pin collectibles with Fansets online at fansets.com. A host, a co-host, and an author. As we watch and rewatch season one, there are other ways to scratch that Star Trek Discovery itch, and we have one of those ways here with us today to talk Star Trek novels. My name is Dan Davidson, and we are Discovering Trek. Welcome one and all to a special off-season episode of Discovering Trek, the Star Trek Discovery Companion, presented by Fansets. It's been several weeks since we sat and talked about our latest favorite chapter in the Star Trek universe, so we figured now would be a good time to have yet another discussion. Again, my name is Dan Davidson, and thank you so much for downloading or streaming or however you're tuning in, because we greatly appreciate it. As with our season wrap-up a few weeks back, we'll be crossing the stream, so to speak, and making this episode of Discovering Trek available over at Trek Geeks, so be warned that there may be some spoilers about Discovery during our discussion. And when I say we, well, you all know the drill. This is the time that I enjoy welcoming my Saru, or my number one, my brother in Trek. He may not have threat ganglia, but he knows when to hold them, and he knows when to fold them. Yeah, he knows when to walk away, and he knows when to run. Well, you can bet the house that he's always ready to talk some Trek. He is Bill Smith. Bill, it's been far too long since we talked Discovery, hasn't it? Oh, it really has. It's good to be back, buddy. Thanks so much. I don't know that I'm running anywhere very fast in this uh, this uh, air boot that I'm wearing, um, so oh I-, I may walk at a brisk pace. How's that? Okay. Well, oh, hold on one second, Bill. Black alert. Black alert. Before we introduce our special guest and get more into the discussion, I'm sorry I had to interrupt you there because uh, we have some incredible discovery news that has just dropped today, and I bet you can't wait to hear what it is. I can't wait. Please regale (laughs) me with the news. Regaling commencing, my friend. It has been announced today that Anson Mount has been tapped to play Captain Christopher Pike of the USS Enterprise in the soon-to-film second season of Star Trek Discovery. Very excited about this. Mount, who's been seen in many films and TV productions, including Crossroads, Smallville, Lost, one of my favorites. I just got to remember what character he was. And he's also been seen on Hell on Wheels with Trek alum Cole Meany, and also most recently has been seen in Inhumans. So, Bill, you know, we've been talking about the possibility of it happening because they talked about Pike. And of course, we saw the Enterprise and all its glory in that season finale. We're going to be seeing Christopher Pike, yo. <laughs> this certainly answers that question, right? Uh, we don't know who else we're going to see yet, but we know we're at the very least going to see Christopher Pike. I think this is some great casting. You know, Mount is a talented actor. He's really got the look that Jeff Hunter kind of had yes. 50 plus years ago. Yeah. I, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does. Plus to know that, you know, this is a dream come true for him from his tweets. I mean, he grew up watching TOS and reruns like we do. Yeah. Yep. So that uh, that gives me a whole lot of a whole lot of good feelings. I just think one of the th- one of the things that's so great about what we've seen with Discovery this year is the cast really knows about the fandom and how much they appreciate it and how they all love Trek. So I can't wait. This is a great announcement. Uh, and you're right. He looks he looks a lot like Pike from uh, from 50 plus years ago. So it's going to be great. And uh, I think what else is going to be great is what we have on tap today on Discovering Trek with this latest offseason episode. That's absolutely correct, Dan. We have a special guest with us, of course. He's the New York Times bestselling author or co-author of many a Trek novel, the latest of which is the second tie-in story for Star Trek Discovery, titled Drastic Measures. He's also written words and stuff for StarTrek.com, as well as the Star Trek Waypoint comic series, among lots of other wordiness he engages in. I love his writing, but I hate that he owns the Star Trek Strategic Operations Simulator arcade game, and I don't. (laughs) The last time we saw him, Dan, was at Star Trek Las Vegas this past August, where he took a photo with us during our TNG scant cosplay to benefit the Nevada SPCA. And also, he didn't throw up. So he has that going for him. It's our honor and privilege to welcome Dayton Ward to Discovering Trek and Trek Geeks. Dayton, welcome to the show, sir. Oh, thanks for having me. Nice to be here. uh, It's been 
it's been a little bit of a, a struggle with illness and with scheduling, with work to get you on here. We appreciate the flexibility, and it's really great to finally have you on here, man. And uh, I got to say, meeting you in Vegas last year was great. Uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed your novels, and I'm sure that Bill has as well. And uh, we're really happy to welcome you to the show to talk about a very special uh, uh, recent novel, Jurassic Measures, like Bill talked about, which is kind of something that we haven't seen lately where there's a novel while a series is in play. Well, I mean, I, I, I did what I could with what I had to work with. You know, it's like uh, the other shows have been off the air for what, 12 years. It was 12 yeah. years since uh, enterprise was off the air. So yeah, every you, you kind of already led into what I was going to talk about. I'm sure later is this is the first time I've written a Star Trek novel where the parent production is in active production. Versus having wrapped many years before, so it was definitely a different dynamic than I was used to. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty cool, and we'll get into drastic measures in just a second. Uh, before we actually do that, Bill, uh, why don't you regale us listeners uh, how they can get in touch with us to share their post discovery blues as we await season two? Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. I can do that, Dan. Hailing frequencies are open and we're transmitting friendship messages in all languages and on all frequencies. You can discover us on Twitter at Discovering Trek. And on Facebook, we can be found at facebook.com slash Discovering Trek. In either place, you can join in on the discussion, leave us comments, questions, suggestions, or give us suggestions on how we can keep ourselves occupied during the Discovery hiatus. Plus, don't forget that you can also send us a voicemail by going to trekgeeks.com and clicking on the giant blue button on the right-hand side of the website. Please remember, though, that any comments you may leave us could be used in an upcoming episode of Discovering Trek. Dan? Thanks, bud. So, Dayton, let's get right into it. We we, we hinted at it just a moment ago. Uh, this is the first time that we've been able to uh, um, be reading about characters in a Star Trek series that is ongoing, and there's new stuff, and it's brand new to everybody. Um, how did this all come into play um, with with writing drastic measures? How did, um, how are you contacted? Did you contact CBS? How did that all come about? Uh, no, they contacted me. Um, you know, I've, as you know, I've been writing Star Trek novels for quite a while now. And, uh, mm -hmm. so I've gotten sort of, wor I've wormed my way in at pocketbooks and I'm, <laughs> I'm in the starting lineup of, of the regular rotation of, of Star Trek novel writers. How that happens nice. is, is a mystery. Uh, uh, it's odd that I, I mean, if you had asked me that question 20 years ago, when I was reading Star Trek novels as a fan, uh, I would have told you you were high, but here we are. Um, so I was contacted by Kirsten Beyer, who is, as you know, a writer on the show. And she's also a very good friend of mine. We've been friends for 10 or 12 years at this point, I think. And uh, she's also a Star Trek novelist. And one of the jobs that she has in addition to her responsibilities in the writing room is she is the wrangler uh, or the handler or the mom or the, you know, the, 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 the overseer of tie-in product products. So novels, comics, anything that has a storyline that would tie into discovery. Uh, she was given that responsibility because she talks that language. That's what they said. You know, you, you, you know how to talk to those book people. Um, we don't want to <laughs> mess with it. So um, she was given that thankless task. And she, they knew from the beginning they wanted to write or they wanted to have tie-in novels and comics to to be produced in concert with the television series. So, you know, Dave Mack was was tapped to write the first uh, novel, which came out right literally the Tuesday after the premiere of this series. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was the next one that they contacted asking if I wanted to be the second in the batting lineup. And of course, I said, heck, yeah. Um <laughs> And the reason I said that was because of my friendship with Kirsten. She had already been as far back as early 2016 contacting me on a on an infrequent basis to pick my brain about various Star Trek minutia. <laughs> um, you know, what about this? What about that? And 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 I did not know at the time what the storyline was going to be for the first season of the show. I just knew that they were picking my brain amongst other people's brains to get ideas and bits of trivia and lore for the sh for the show. So that's how I came to be on board. Um, so yeah, of course, when they asked, I said yes. So was this always going to be a tie-in to the conscience of the king, or did it go through a bunch of other ideas before this one was settled on? There were a couple of other ideas on the table first. Uh, when she originally contacted me, she was she had in mind that I would write 
a, a strictly a Lorca story uh, set prior to the show, very similar to what Dave did with Michael Burnham's character in his novel. Um, uh, the original plan was that I would write something that was set closer to the beginning of the, of the events you see on the show. Um, we even talked about possibly telling the story of what happened to Lorca when he was in command of the Baran, the ship that he oh, wow. destroyed. And yeah. you know, they were still working out the details of that and deciding if they wanted to show it on film or not show it on film. And so I was sort of treading water, biding my time while they worked out these things. And then I started to see the initial story treatments for the first few episodes and other and scripts for the first couple of episodes. That's another thing. They that was very different from what I'm used to. We were clued into scripts and set photography and production art very early. Oh on. man. Uh, I, yeah, I was I was I was operating under like 14 different non-disclosure agreements for over a year and a half. <laughs> uh, oh, I bet. And, and and until they announced my involvement with the novel at Vegas last year, I had not been able to say a word. I knew like the prior Vegas, Vegas 2016, that oh, I was going to be doing my. this, and I, I couldn't say anything for a year. Uh, I was waiting for them to get off the, the you know, and, and announce it. Um, so anyway, as I was reading these stories, I really took a liking to Giorgio's character, and more so than Lorca even. And so I contacted Kirsten and I said, I really am digging. Giorgio, is there a way that I could maybe write a story focusing on her or involving her some way? And she said, why not write a story with both Giorgio and Lorca? So that started us brainstorming on what could bring these two characters together because it's it's not said one way or the other whether they know each other on the show. Right. Um, right. So I'm like, okay. So we cast around for a couple of ideas and it was my editor of Pocketbooks, Margaret Clark, who suggested the Tarsus for Contents of the King connection. Oh, cool. Uh, amongst a couple of other ideas that we batted around. And then that was the one that Kirsten really liked. So armed with that information and, uh, and the blessing of go forth and, and come up with a storyline. Um, I went to my corner and I, and I conjured up an outline uh, to place Giorgio and Lorca amidst the events of uh, Tarsus Four and the colonists. It, uh, it it really blends in really well, the, the story um, before Conscience of the King. Let me ask you this. You talked about how you had to be quiet for a long time and, and you, and you kind of had ideas and, and, and things that you saw before the show went into play. Did you know while you were writing it what was going to be happening with the character of Lorca on Discovery? Because there's a great ending to your novel, and I don't really want to say too much about it for people that may not have finished it. But we kind of get a great idea uh, or a great look at a Lorca uh, at the end of the book. Did you have to make any changes or did you work it all in or did it really not matter that he was Mirror Universe uh, Lorca during the show in season one? Uh, to answer your first question, I knew pretty much everything that was going to happen <laughs> well ahead of every of what folks were seeing nice. on the show. Um, I didn't know the twist about Mirror Lorca from the very beginning. Uh, I got clued in at some point about the halfway mark of production. You know, they, when they as they were writing the mm -hmm. scripts, and and then they would they would she would clue me in. Now, as I was getting my outline put together and started writing the manuscript, that's when they started cluing me in on all the various plot twists that were coming much later in the season, even though they hadn't written the script yet. And it didn't really affect – the only thing it really affected was we talked very much a lot about, you know, when was the switch made? When did mm -hmm. Lorca from the Mirror Universe come over to our universe um, and, or, and vice versa? And, you know, how did that affect my book? And, you know, it, we determined that it shouldn't affect my book because of how far behind or far, far ahead of the mm -hmm. events of the show I was setting my book. I was 10 years ahead of the events of the show. So, it's, it, you know, there's, it's reasonable to assume that Lorca did not switch that far back in the past. Right. Um, and, in fact, there's hints about it during the course of the show that he may have made that switch as much as, you know, as little as a year or less prior to the events of the show based on mm -hmm. things that Admiral uh, – uh, Cornwell says. So uh, I was in the clear as far as that. Now, what that what that brought upon me was, well, how do I portray a character that's never been seen before? <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, so that was the challenge. And I'm like, well, okay, because you know, and, and and it's not like the writers of the show had didn't have any ideas about what they thought this character would be like. They had plenty of ideas, so that part was helpful. I mean, they they had their ideas on what they thought the real Lorca would be. 
and or the prime Lorca would be. So I was I was assisted in that regard very much by by Kirsten. So I, I wasn't flying completely blind. There are there are parts of this book that are they're a little dark, and <laughs> I, I <laughs> just you know just a thumbnail, um, and certainly darker than Star Trek has been in in some instances, um, especially when you talk about you know the the scenes at the amphitheater toward the beginning of the book. Um, was that a challenge too? Because I mean you know in Star Trek it's it's usually a lot more positive. Yeah, there's really no good way to spin that. It's <laughs> yeah. just not a good. It's really not. It's just not a good look, no matter how you come at it. Yeah, and um, yeah, it is a little dark. It's it's darker than even some of the really dark stuff on DS Nine, which you know would I, I guess you could say that's that's where you got the bulk of our dark Star Trek was from DS Nine, and so right. this really is in that ballpark, uh, and it was sort of necessary to kind of take Lorca in particular to that place because of I, I wanted to put Giorgio and Lorca not at odds with each other, but definitely coming at it from different perspectives. So not just it wasn't enough to just have him on the planet when all this stuff happens. I, I felt the need to have it affect him personally in some way. Um so that he could start from a point of I really don't care about the rules. And then of course that plays into the whole Lorca's sort of a maverick on the show. And at the time I was writing, the decision had not yet been made when the book was going to be published. So I didn't know if it was going to come out before the twist was revealed on the show or after. And so I had to kind of ride that line and, 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 and keep it flexible enough that if they made a decision that really required a rewrite, I could get in there fast and, and, and not have to do a whole lot of reworking on it. So that's why Lorca is kind of dark the way he is and also how he ends up toward the end of the book and how, it's, how, his, how his dealing with the tragedy is so much different than how Giorgio take, takes it. Now, at the at the point where you wrote those those scenes in the book, had the actors actually been cast in the roles yet? Uh, when I was writing my outline, I knew that Michelle Yeoh was going to play Giorgio, and I knew that that uh, Sonequa Martin Green had been cast as Michael Burnham, and I knew that Doug Jones was cast as Saru. I did not know okay. who was going to play Lorca, uh, and mm. then when I did find out that it was going to be Jason Isaacs, I was under the assumption that he was going to play him. Uh, with his British accent. Uh, it came later that, oh, he's not. He's going to play him like an American. He's going to have this sort of southern southern drawl, very light southern drawl to him. I'm like, okay, well, that affects some of the early scenes I'd already written <laughs> you know, as far as this, you know, like mannerisms and jargon and slang and how he might think about a particular problem or a particular thing. It's like, okay, he, you know, he's got a different sensibility about him, so I have to go back and think about that. Um I wasn't trying to play him more. I wasn't trying to play him like Picard, but in my head, he was sort of Picard light, at least in, in, okay. in, in, in speech patterns and things. And mm -hmm. then I was actually kind of a relief when they told me he wasn't going to play him that way. Cause I'm like, Oh good. Then I don't have to worry about making him a Picard clone. Uh, I can have a little <laughs> more, I can have a little more fun with him. So. One of the things that I like about the, about the story, Dayton is, is I always, as, as I'm sure millions of readers do is when I'm reading, I, I try to visualize what's going on and try to play the scene out in my head and, and being able to do that with such crispness with the characters and how you write them, especially the dressing down scene where Giorgio really gives it to Lorca for his behavior towards a prisoner, um, it is really well written and it really shows the relationship that we don't get to see in the show, of course, because of what happens in, in the, in the first episode. Um, and it really gives a nice backstory to characters that for all intents and purposes, don't have a backstory on the show. I really like that. Um, the question, one question I have to you about a specific thing with the book is I loved the idea of the Betazoids hiding their psychic powers from the Federation in uh, that you, that you touched upon. Was this something that you thought about doing for a while or was it just something that came to you during the writing process that actually works well in the story? We talked about it. Um, I talked about it. it was, it was my editor's idea. Actually, it was Margaret Clark's idea to, to, oh, wow. well, I was, what I was doing was I was, I was trying to, to mix up the cast of, if you will, the cast of characters. So they weren't all humans, uh, which mm -hmm. of course is a big problem when you're dealing with TOS and, and before, because there's just not a lot right. of aliens. Uh, and we'd already, you know, I had a Denobulin in there. And I had, in the very beginning, I thought I could I could sneak another Kelpian, a different Kelpian into the mix. But they asked me not to do that because they wanted to make sure that that 
that Saru got the spotlight as far as being the first Kelpian that you see. Um, they didn't want me to take anything away from him, which is which is which was fine. And then it was Margaret who suggested I, I make this one character a Betazoid. And of course, my first question was, well, what about the whole mind reading thing? You know, and uh, mm-hmm. it was her idea to 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 have them suppress it when they're not yet a Federation member or when they're a newly joined Federation member. Um, I thought, well, that's an interesting story twist because um, that gives us something to play with later on, maybe in another story, whether yeah. it's a discovery book or or something else. I'm like, well, there, there's a whole there's a whole story that can be sprung just from you know, hey, what do you mean you've been? We've got mind readers <laughs> on my crew for all this time and nobody told me. What the hell's that about? Exactly. Um, so I put a pin in that idea uh, <laughs> and went with the whole idea of that 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 this character is 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 suppressing this information and yet using it to the team's advantage at key points during the storyline. Um, on a, on a tangent, this just popped into my head as you were talking. Of course, we only have seen one Kelping with Saru. Would you like to do a story or see at some point in discovery, what the other side of the Kelpian race is like as hunters? Because I said on discovering Trek, uh, Saru does a pretty good job of kicking ass when he needs to. So it kind of makes me wonder what these hunter species of his planet are like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's definitely something that I would like to do. I what I don't know for sure is, um, uh, you know, James Swallow is the author that's going to write the third Discovery novel, or actually, he's writing the third Discovery novel, and it is a Saru focused story. Oh, and great. what I do not know is if any of that will factor into his story. I would I wouldn't bet against it, uh, mm-hmm. but I haven't read his outline, and I'm not 100 percent sure what he's working on. But I, I can't imagine that didn't cross his. His radar because he's just like me. There's a great idea. Uh, so I'm, if, but if he does it by some by some miracle, does not pursue that idea, then I'm absolutely leaping on that one. Uh, no, I definitely would come back and write it. There's a couple of different characters that I would like to uh, play with if given the chance. You know this. This makes me think of a question as as you're talking about this, and it's what was it that actually inspired you to start writing? Because obviously you've been a Star Trek fan probably all your life. I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. And at what point did you decide to make that leap from guy who watches Star Trek on TV to guy who writes Star Trek words? I mean, did you always want to write books? No, uh, actually, I didn't. Uh, I did not have that desire when I was a kid or a teenager. Uh, I started writing for fun as a creative outlet, uh, probably in my early to mid 20s. Uh, I mean, in, tar- in terms of actually taking it seriously, like actually trying to finish something. Um, sure. And I wrote, I wrote, you know, other stories and I wrote a couple of Star Trek stories and then I wrote a couple of more Star Trek stories and then I would write goofy stories that I would share amongst my circle of friends uh, you know just and use them as characters and wacky adventures that we came up with that kind of thing and then um, <laughs> but I had written some Star Trek stories to share amongst that circle of friends and then when Pocketbooks announced they were doing the Strange New Worlds contest uh, the very first one in 1997 I was convinced by a friend to enter a story into that contest. Um, and they picked it. They oh, cool. picked it as one of the, they picked it as one of the first winners of the first 18 winners of that first year's contest. So we all got paid, you know, we got contracts, we got royalties or in theory, we get royalties on the sales of the book. Those actually have not yet materialized, uh, <laughs> but we got paid and we got a contract. So it was a professional writing credit. And I continued to write and play with stories. And I submitted the stories to some of the science fiction magazines like analog and Asimov. And I got rejected. And then, when the second and third Strange New Worlds contest came around in the successive years, I entered those contests and I got stories picked for each of those, you know, for the second and third anthology, at which point I rendered myself ineligible to enter the contest anymore because now I'm a, quote, professional writer. I have the requisite minimum <laughs> credits to be considered a pro. And that is when the editor at Pocket at the time, John Ordover, offered me a novel contract to write a Star Trek novel. Um and of course, I'd never written anything longer than a short story ever. So of course, I said, "Sure, I'm happy to do that. That'd be awesome. What could possibly go wrong?" And that's how I started, and I've been doing it ever since. What about Vanguard? Let's talk about that for a second, because <laughs> though you know, if there's anything that I would love to see as an additional series down the road someday, those books are awesome, man. You got you and David Mack and uh, Kevin Dilmore, I believe, uh, yep. involved. What what brought that whole whole uh situation to fruition for you well vanguard is the creation of david mack and a former editor who used to head up one of the start you know he was there was a time when pocketbooks had uh three in-house editors working on star trek books alone 
and, and a couple of writer, uh, editors working freelance. Um, at the time, Marco Palmieri was one of those editors, and he and Dave Mack conceived of Vanguard as a counter or as a counterpart to some of the spinoff novel lines that Pocket had done that were set in the next-gen era. So you had like New Frontier, and there was a series of books based on the Klingons, and we even had right. the, um, the e-book novellas that were focused on the Starfleet Corps of Engineers. Um, Marco thought that a similar spinoff series where you could create most of the characters yourself and you weren't bound by the canon as much uh, would work in the TOS era. So he and Dave conceived of Vanguard. And Dave got to write the – he wrote the, the, the Bible. He developed the characters. He came up with a storyline that would cover half a dozen books, You know, the, the big hits as far as the story arcs were concerned from front to back. Um, he, it was always conceived as a, as, a, as a limited book series, not an ongoing thing. And uh, he wrote the first novel in the series and then basically set things up in such a way with particular characters and particular situations that Marco, Marco would almost have no choice but to ask me <laughs> and Kevin, who was my, who's my, my frequent writing partner, to, to write mm -hmm. the second book in the series. Um, he had it in mind at the time there would be multiple writers that would come and contribute books just like they do to the other series. Um, so Kevin and I wrote the second novel, picking up where Dave left off. And then Dave said he wanted to write the third book. And at, by that point, Marco had decided that the best way for, Mar for Vanguard to proceed is if Dave and, and then Kevin and I alternated writing duties. So Dave gotcha. wrote the odd-numbered books, and Kevin and I would write the even-numbered books. And that's how it became a one-two punch. And I'll tell you, that was some of the most fun I've ever had writing Star Trek. I love that you series. Know, I, I love everything about it. I have to say that those books, the Vanguard books in particular, are really the ones that kind of brought me back to Star Trek novels after years of not having read at all. Nice. I can remember being a you know a, a preteen and a teenager in the, in the early mm -hmm. '80s, and I was reading books you know like Sonny Cooper's Black Fire and some of the movie oh, sure. novelizations. And then you know when you get to be a teenager, life just sort of creeps in, and then you get to be an adult and you you work for a living, and and you find less and less time to read, but. It was the Vanguard novels and even the uh, the Mirror Universe novels that after that, when I read those, that really kind of brought me back into novels. And this kind of takes me, uh, you know, on a on a pretty wide route to a, a larger question regarding canon. I've I've come to the conclusion over the years that now at this point in my life, and, and as a Trekkie, I I don't care about canon. I just want <laughs> good stories. I don't. I want good stories that are told well. You know, because if mm -hmm. if Batman and James Bond and Superman and the Lone Ranger can retell themselves over 50, 60, 70 years, then why can't Star Trek? And uh, I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it, it was a tough thing to, to get past for me because, you know, as, as Trek fans, we kind of live and die by canon, you know, of our own choosing. But um, is it harder to write some novels knowing that, that some fans are out there going, ah, oh, that's not canon, that sucks? No, nah, I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> I love I mean, it. I, I love I, it. I, I my my thing is, and I'm I, I'm the same way. I read, you know, when I was a kid growing up, and not to date. I'm well, I'm going to date myself. I was I grew up in the I was a single digit kid in the 70s. So I I grew up watching the reruns after school every day, and I got mm -hmm. to watch the animated show first run. And I was collecting. Yep. I was reading the Oddball Gold Key comic that would show up every once in a while at Woolworth, you know, on the spinner rack, and whatever. Whatever infrequently published books came out of Bantam Books, you know they had the they had their episode oh, yeah. adaptations, and then they had yeah. the original. They had about a dozen original novels that they published over the course of several years, and then when Pocket Books landed the contract, and of course I didn't know how this worked. I just like, hey, Star Trek, there's Star Trek on the shelf. Excuse, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't know what your rating was. Sorry, but whatever it is, I just blew it. Um, so that's my one. Well, anyway, I mean, I didn't know anything about publishing contracts and licensing agreements or anything at that age. I didn't care. I just went to the store and there was a Star Trek book and I bought it. Um, but over the course of, you know, several years of reading these things and I, and I kept buying them and reading them while I was in the military, you know, I'd pick them up at the PX or somewhere if I was overseas. And so I picked, I, I mean, I was there from the very beginning and then I, there was a time probably in the late nineties where I started to get kind of burnt out on them. Um, because they all just felt very cookie cutter to me. They were, you know, very similar yeah. plots, not a lot of, you can't move the goalposts anywhere. And what I did not know at the time was that that was a studio 
uh, you know, that was a studio enforced rule as far as, you know, you can't go outside these lines and you have to put all the toys back when you're done and you can't really make any uh. meaningful changes. And it was, I didn't know anything about that at the time, but I, it was funny because right about the time John Ordover came on board as an editor, you know, and he, and he took over the line, that's when things started to change. He introduced the new frontier mm-hmm. spinoff books and he introduced the strange new worlds books and, and, uh, you know, a couple of other initiatives that kind of pumped a little life into the line. And mm-hmm. so once strange new worlds came along and I started, you know, writing stories to try to get into those contests, I started paying more attention to the books again. And of course, at this point, we've got four different TV shows on and they each have novels that come out every once in a while. And, yeah. you know, there's the oddball film and there's the new frontier and the other spinoffs. And it's like just Star Trek overload. You know, that, that, that time in the late mid to late nineties was the Star Trek sweet spot. Right. Yeah. T- you know, two TV shows on at the same time and a movie every couple of years and all kinds of merchandising and the thing out in Vegas. And, uh, it was just Star Trek all the time. Um, so yeah, I, I I went through a period kind of like reading comics. You burn out of reading comics, and then I got back into it again after many years of of not doing that. So yeah, I'm definitely a whole hog in on it now. But as far as canon, no, I quit caring about canon years ago. Um, I love per- it, particularly with original series novels. You know, yeah. Here's a, here's my take on canon. It, it, it's I'm I, I don't really worry about it too much. It's it's amazing watching people's heads explode on social media when you bring up canon <laughs> stuff. But the way I look at it is. If I want it to be canon to me, it's canon. And I'll say it right out, not just because yeah. you're on the show. I think a lot of the books are canon. I love Summon the Thunder. Oh, God, that's can- Starbase 47. It's just the smartest thing you guys ever came up with, first of all. But like things like Imzadi and Sorrows of Empire, two of mm-hmm. my favorite novels ever. I personally consider them canon, even if they're not, quote unquote, official canon. It's all to the right. fan, I think, of what they want to to believe as part of the official timeline type of thing. And uh, it, it's really become an argument that has kind of gone like really nutso in the past couple of years. Yeah. I should probably draw a distinction as a fan, you know, or as a writer of this stuff, as, <laughs> as, as a writer of the, of yes. the official stuff, I respect Canon and I, and I mm-hmm. make sure that my books fit in as, 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 a, as a, you know, neatly as possible. And right. Vanguard, Vanguard to me is a prime example of how you can respect the Canon and yet still expand mm-hmm what you yes. know about the on-screen canon and add layers to what you saw on screen that we Dave and Marco and Kevin and I are all diehard fans of the original show. And we're very protective of the, of the original show. So and everything we did in Vanguard was, was born out of respecting what the mm-hmm. original show laid down, not changing it up, not, not changing an ending or not rewriting an ending. It was, it was, we weaved in and out of that canon and, but hugged it as close as we could, you know? Yeah. It was that. It was that. It was that fine line between cuddling and holding someone down so they can't get away. It's that's how close <laughs> we did that. And thank you, Dave Attell, for that joke. Um, <laughs> but as far as respecting the canon as a fan, yeah, there are books that I have in my head that actually those events actually happen, and there are episodes mm-hmm. of every single show that I refuse to acknowledge ever happened. <laughs> you know, that's great. It, it's like if I could. Ta- I said this on another show. If I could take a, a, a tool and cut out those portions of the Blu-ray so that they would still play, but yet that episode was no longer accessible, I would be happy guy. Right. Um, and, and then there are books that I absolutely think happen. And Vanguard is right there at the top of that list. Yeah, I agree. See, it's it's much easier for me to to think that that the Vanguard series is canon or Imzadi is canon than it is for me to think of uh, Star Trek and the Planet of the Apes or Star Trek and the <laughs> X-Men or Green Lantern is canon. But, uh, you know, to each his own, I guess it's all still fun and it's all still Star Trek. So there are positive things uh, all about it. And that's what I try to tell people who, you know, who are, who are getting, because uh, I, 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 I've always been fascinated by how many knots people can tie themselves up into thinking about that stuff. I'm like, yeah. you know, if you liked it, then it happened. It's canon. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing that comes along that might trip you up is if, you know, something comes along in a future show or a future movie that under, you know, overwrites a particular event in a novel. But even so, you can, met, you can mentally edit it so it'll fit. Uh, I've done that. I mean, The War of the Worlds is a great novel. Even though we know that there are no aliens living on Mars, <laughs> and you know, That's ra- true. Raise the Point. Raise the Titanic is an excellent thriller novel. Even though we know it could never happen because the ship did not sink in one piece, um, <laughs> which is the whole thing that drives that plot. So, but those don't those don't stop being good stories because reality has asserted itself. Or in this case, right. a new canon has asserted itself. So that's me as a as a fan. I've got stuff on my shelf dating back to the '60s for Star Trek, and sure. I love it all. Um, nice. But as far as 
like trying to make, and then there's the group that people tries to, you know, get it all organized in a timeline. You know, how, how did all this happen on, you know, chronology and every little thing, every <laughs> adventure from a book or a comic. And I'm like, I used to be that way. Don't get me wrong. I was totally obsessed about that. And I mm-hmm. realized I'm driving myself insane trying mm-hmm. to figure yes. this out, particularly, particularly with the original show, the original series. I mean, if we, if we calculate all the adventures they've had on screen and on in books and comics, they had an adventure like every 10 seconds. And, and never slept and never went to the bathroom in five years. Um, <laughs> so I, at some point, decided mentally, uh, as a fan, the five-year mission is a setting. It's a, it's a point of departure. It's like Riverdale or Springfield or someplace where the mm-hmm. characters never age. They're always in their prime. Right. And I can always tell a yep. new story with those characters. All right. Nice. Uh, you kind of alluded to this uh, in part of our conversation, Dayton, but I wanted to ask you, Bill and I love to talk about how we have a very close connection and maybe even a family type of feeling with a lot of the fans and friends that we meet up with Vegas every year. Um, and to some extent, we have a certain closeness here in the podcast Trek community. Do you as authors have that same type of closeness like you're, you we've talked about david mack and, and mr dillmore and so forth is that a, is it a close-knit group uh, of people that work on these novels i like to think so i mean uh we're all friends and we all you know we try mm-hmm. to hang out we only get to see each other at various conventions but we have gone so far mm-hmm. as to have you know weekends where we all get together someplace and do something basically we have the convention but we don't invite all of you you know, <laughs> and we don't have panel discussions and we don't have to be anywhere at Sunday morning at eight o'clock. We, you know, we basically have the get together at the hotel with the bar and doing fun things without all the convention hassle. Because usually when we see each other, you know, if we get to hang out, it's very briefly uh, in the mm-hmm. bar or at a signing or at a panel or you pass each other in the hallway and then, you know, it's over and we're gone. Right. Everybody goes right. their separate ways. And that's that's the last time you see them for a year sometimes. Or more if they can't make next year's show. So yeah, we are we are a tight little group, and uh, we like you know we 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 are constantly throwing stuff back and forth via email or uh, trying to get together or plotting a get together or something. <laughs> Do you get to bounce ideas off each other of of, of oh. possible ideas that you have, or is that something that you kind of keep close to the vest at times, even though you all friends? You know, it depends on the project. If 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 I've got an idea brewing for a book, but I think it kind of touches on something somebody wrote or it connects in some way to something somebody wrote, you reach out to that person and say, hey, this is what I'm plotting. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Uh, I did that with uh, in one example. One notable example is Greg Cox. Um, he wrote the the, uh, the Khan books, you know, the two-part uh, yes. rise, and, rise and Fall of Khan yep. where he and nice. Gary Seven had it. And then he wrote a, mm-hmm. a, a follow-up to that later on. But I wrote a book – that came out five years ago, five or six years ago that I wanted to expand on the whole Gary seven and those people from that organization on earth during the forties and the fifties as a precursor to what you see in the episode. But I wanted to acknowledge the continuity that he'd laid down in those books. So he and I talked about some things and I'd like, Hey, if I take this correct, if I go in this direction, is that going to trip you up with any potential sequels? And he was like, ah, go for it. Nice. So I, yeah, I took a, in, in, the, in that case, I was very careful to acknowledge what went on in those two books and lace them in as I, as I ended up writing sequels to that book. Uh, and it became more prevalent that I was crossing the ground that he'd already, you know, walked on with his books. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to weave in and out and around what he did so that they can harmonize. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. We do it all the time. Thanks. Very, um, is there a Trek series you enjoy writing? for the most? I mean, they almost have their own unique challenges and, and points of interest, but which one really gets your mind going at, at like warp speed when it comes to writing those stories? I'm probably, I mean, if I had to pick just one, I guess, it, I mean, I'm an original guy. I'm an original series fan, mm-hmm. first, first and foremost. I mean, if I start thinking of an idea, it's usually a Kirk and Spock adventure. And then at some point, I'll think, unless I'm asked, you know, like I've, I've also written several next generation novels and I really do enjoy writing those books as well. I'm a big fan of uh, Picard's character. And, you know, those books have with this, with the studio's blessing have taken the characters and the events beyond what you saw in the last film. Yeah. Nemesis. So we are several years beyond the events of that film now. And a lot of things have happened. A lot of personnel changes and shakeups and things like, you know, Riker, of course, we knew it from the film. Riker and Troy are on the Titan. Um, mm-hmm. Data, you know what happened to Data. Um, who else is missing? Um, Wesley, of course, is gone. And um, so, really, of the of the original cast of Next Gen, you've got Picard Crusher, 
Worf and uh, LaForge on the Enterprise. And then, so all the positions that were vacated uh, were filled in with new characters that, that the authors created at Pocketbooks. And so for the last three, or, I've written three or four books. Maybe it's five now. I, I'm sorry. I forget. <laughs> I start to blur. <laughs> I've written four or five books with these new character dynamic, and I'm having a ball with it because it's different. I can do things mm-hmm. with with this new character. That's that's you know I can I can look at Picard through this new character's eyes and and show you know and talk to the reader about things that you know maybe we don't we're not used to seeing the character in this light because we're so familiar with him. But if I run it through the prism of a new character, I can have a little more fun with it. Um, so the dynamics are different. And so I, I'm at, I have a ball doing that. I love in particular playing Picard off one of the younger officers who's sort of an unorthodox, kind of a smart ass, you know, and she doesn't always toe the line with the Starfleet, Starfleet protocols and all that kind of thing. And, and, but, but Picard is very tolerant of her, uh, you know, cause he's mellowed over the years. And right. when he, when the, when the show started, he was, you know, you, you could, you could argue that he was kind of a jerk, particularly when it came to matters of children and stuff. Uh, and then of course, you know, in the books now he's married and he's got a kid of his own. Right. Uh, so he's mellow. He's mellow. He's, you know, he's, 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 you know, he's, he's just a little more laid back now. He's got it going on. So it's very difficult for Picard to be surprised by something when there's a story that they encounter something they've never seen before. He's, he's been there and he's done that. But if I run all that through the, you know, the, through the viewpoint of another new character who's never seen this kind of thing before, I get to have a whole new level of fun. Um, well, you know, and it's good that you're bringing that up because it, it, it makes me think of your novel, Headlong Flight, which I have to say I absolutely loved. I, uh, I read it while I was on vacation last year and I finished it uh, in, in about two days in, in between stops on our cruise. And, and that's a book where you tied a lot of those things together just so seamlessly across, uh, well, uh, I guess we'll say a couple of different timelines. Um, I just have to say I, I truly enjoyed it. It's probably become one of my favorite Star Trek books of all time. Thank you. I, I did not expect the book to get the kind of uh, f- feedback from it that I've gotten. And a lot of people have responded very positively to that book. Um, I had a lot of fun writing it. And to be honest, it was, it was the plot was born out of desperation because uh, I needed Margaret Clark was my editor. And she's like, I need a next gen book. Give me an outline quick. <laughs> so, I, mean, I, uh, I, uh, I think over the course of a weekend, I sketched out a very rough idea. And I actually the headlong fl- what became headlong flight was actually a part of a plot that i removed from the previous book that i'd written called armageddon's arrow uh which also has a time feature you know, a time travel related plot in it i removed that whole subplot where the you know the other enterprise and the other uh, and the romulan ship are in play in that story because i'd already loaded the deck with so much stuff going on in that book i just kind of removed that whole plot and set it aside and then in desperation, when she said she needed an outline or a pitch for me very quickly, I went into the file and pulled out that discarded subplot and then expanded into its own book. Oh, nice. So the That's lesson a- here is don't throw anything away, writers and trainers. <laughs> <laughs> that actually brings up a, a side question before I bring up my last question for you, Dayton, is you brought up time travel. And it seems to be a popular topic on the series, on TV, and, and in novels. Do you find it easier to write time travel stories because of the possibility of a reset button or just different things happening because it's time travel? Or does that get too complicated? I, you know, the, it's funny. The time travel stories that I've written, I've always tried to kind of turn the idea a little bit on its head. I've, I've come at it from a, you know, a, a different direction, or I've tried to come at it from different directions and not just have it be the case of the Enterprise crew goes back in time and, you know, that kind of story. Or mm-hmm. you know, I, I've always tried to come out, come up with some different twist that can help me avoid the usual pitfalls you run into when you write a time travel story, which is the potential paradox and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So, um, while I enjoy time travel stories, um, they can, they can definitely be a headache. Um, or what is it? Uh, the, isn't that what Janeway said? They give me a temporal mechanics gives me a headache. Yes. Yeah. And I don't even, I'm not even that smart. I'm basically very <laughs> dumb when it comes to science. So, um, I always try I guess I just try to come up with different situations. So it's usually, if there is time travel involved, it's somebody else doing the time traveling and our people have to deal with the, the ramifications sure. of that. So that's okay. kind of how I've skated around. Oh my God! Will Picard change history? Kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's uh, they plus you know it's to be fair, it's sort of an overdone an overdone thing. Uh, mm, so it's true. you know yeah. if you're if you're going to do a time travel story, if you're going to do a holodeck story, if you're going to do a Borg story, you know you really got to try to find a new twist on that trope. Sure, uh, absolutely. 
Well, let me ask you to do this for us. Put on your fan glasses now and not your author glasses. Um, as someone who's involved um, in Discovery and has written a great novel for Discovery, which I personally consider canon, I will say that. And that's one of those things we talked about. As a fan, we're now done with season one. What do you hope to see next season? Is there anything <laughs> in particular that you're really looking forward to seeing? Well, there's a lot of things that I hope to see, but I can't. I'm it's, I'm walking a dangerous line right now because I already have an inkling of what they're going to do. So oh, oh, the, no. the men in black so suits have, will be showing up I at have, your door. Exactly. Yeah, I'm still under NDA, and they still have ninjas hiding outside my window in the bushes. Um, so you know, I would like to see, I would like to see more exploration uh, in, in in the in the Star Trek tradition. I'd like to see more stories like we got. We got a tease of that with the episode that was Saru focused, uh, episode mm-hmm. eight. You know where they go down to the, where they have the landing, the the away team going down. I'm sorry, landing party because by golly, we're the TOS era, <laughs> so it's right. a landing party. There's no party like landing party. Um, <laughs> I want to see more stories like that. I want to see, and I definitely would like to see some of the other crew members get fleshed out a little bit. There are some really interesting crew members that you see sitting at different bridge stations that we don't mm-hmm. know anything about them. Um, so I really would like to see some attention given to some of those characters. Um, hopefully we'll see that. And then, you know, once the new captain arrives, whoever that person may be, um, it'll be interesting to see the dynamic as far as that person's relationship with Burnham. So, yeah, there's all kinds of what I hope to see coming up in the next season. But I'm, that's as far as I'm going to go because I don't want to trip on a mine <laughs> or anything. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, man, it has been a an absolute honor and pleasure to talk to you about your novel and some of your Star Trek memories. I got to say, having a New York Times bestselling author on the show is certainly something that I am very excited about. And uh, we can't thank you enough for joining us. But before we go, could you please let folks know where they can find you on social media? Because I got to say, your tweets and posts on Facebook are things that will go down in history as some of the funniest, my man. <laughs> well, thank you very much. You flatter me. Um, I, I, I spend an unhealthy amount of time on social media. Um, I mean, it started off as a fun thing, and then they told us you have to have a platform if you're an author. You have to have a social media platform, blah, blah, blah. So many Facebook friends and so many Twitter followers and all that kind of garbage, and it'll help you with your sales. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm having fun with it. Um, you can find me on the, on the, on the interwebs at, uh, DaytonWard.com. That is basically my landing page for my social media platform. You'll find my blog and links to my Facebook and my Twitter. And I think I'm have an Instagram link there by now. I think I figured out how that works and other <laughs> links like, you know, my Amazon page and my columns at StarTrek.com. Uh, there are all those sorts of links there. That's my one-stop shopping for internet banality. Excellent. <laughs> Well, uh, again, we want to thank you for joining us. We wish you all the success in the world going forward. We look forward to the next chapters uh, of your Star Trek writing, sir. Thank you so much for joining us here on Discovering Trek. No, thanks for having me. As has been the case all season long, this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Fansets, the exclusive sponsor for Discovering Trek. You know, Fansets has so many collectible pin offerings for fandoms, aside from just Star Trek. I mean, you can get yourself pins from Alien, uh, Harry Potter, or even Justice League, and so many more from the DC universe. And Dan, they're adding new pins all the time, so we want everyone to check them out. Indeed, they are adding new pins, and we do want everyone to check them out. Fansets.com is the address, and folks, you will not be disappointed in their amazing selection of pins. Fansets is pinpoint accuracy, and you can check out their newest releases, including Neelix, Jayla, and even Discovery's own Admiral Cornwell over at Fansets.com. And as always, we thank our friends at Fansets for being our exclusive sponsor for this entire season of Discovering Trek. You know, Bill, that was an amazingly fun conversation. I have no doubt that we could probably sit and talk to Dayton for hours on end about things that he's done, things that he's doing, and things that he loves about Star Trek. I have every confidence that this won't be the last we hear of Dayton Ward on one of our podcasts. <laughs> what a great time we had. What a super guy. And, and like I said, I, I truly love his writing. So I'm glad that he's contributing more to the Trek universe, even as we speak, probably. 
Yeah, it's really something. You know, when we met him out in Vegas, it was it was special because you know I was excited. You know, when we're meeting all these people and discovery and all that stuff. He was generally a wonderful person, and like I said at the beginning of this show, we had to reschedule a few times, and he was more than gracious. and And we just can't thank him enough for being on the show. and And um, for a little something special, we're going to do actually, Bill, with Dayton being our special guest this week. We figured that we would mix it up a little with our weekly giveaway. Um, So, folks, we want you to head on over to Twitter. Tell us your thoughts on novels, Star Trek novels in particular, or Dayton's latest book, Drastic Measures, or simply the fact that you love that Dayton has the Star Trek Strategic Operations Simulator video game and Bill doesn't that's (laughs) you're very welcome that's always very cool so go on over to twitter share your thoughts use the special hashtag fortune cookie all one word and next time that we are on the discovering trek airwaves we're going to pick two winners bill and they are going to receive copies of drastic measures personally autographed by author dayton ward himself and you are not able to partake in it oh oh (laughs) okay Yes. Yes. I'm, I'm very sorry. Um, we'll get you a fortune cookie though. Thank you. Okay. You good with that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah folks. Uh, Day- uh, Dayton's been very gracious in, uh, in offering those for us. So we're going to pick those two winners. He's going to autograph them. They're going to get shipped right to your house and you're going to have a collector's item for all time. So uh, please send those tweets in with that special hashtag fortune cookie. And uh, you know, now that we are in a solid waiting pattern for season two, uh, it's time to have one last episode before we take our own hiatus here at Discovering Trek. But our final episode of the season is sure to be a good one because we're going to talk season one again. We're going to give our thoughts on season two. Uh, maybe a little preview of STLV is in the works, Bill. Uh, all things Discovery. And I don't know, we might discuss things like the first Discovery tie in novel by the awesome David Mack uh, entitled Desperate Hours. And maybe we'll throw in some Discovery Comics, yo. That's always a good thing. Oh, I can't wait, Dan. It's going to be a great discussion next time. Of course, in the meantime, we want everyone to remember that we've made it even easier for you to subscribe to both Discovering Trek and Trek Geeks, a Star Trek podcast. Head on over to podfleet.com and find out how you can get both of our podcasts directly on your iPod, iPhone, Android, or other device. Plus, you can even stream our podcast using iHeartRadio, Stitcher, or the planet's largest streaming service, Spotify. They're your independent Star Trek podcasts delivered your way. So join our pod fleet and make it so. Dan. Thank you, my good man. Well, folks, that just about does it for season one of Star Trek Discovery and Discovering Trek. Like I said, we're going to have one more discussion up our sleeve in the coming weeks, and we can't wait to see what the summer holds for those Star Trek Discovery season two announcements. We want to thank you for taking time each week to listen to our thoughts on the newest chapter of Star Trek. And we look forward to talking to you again very soon. Until then, here are some words of wisdom from Captain James T. Kirk. You know the greatest danger facing us is ourselves, and irrational fear of the unknown. There is no such thing as the unknown, only things temporarily hidden, temporarily not understood. And until next time, never stop discovering. Music for Discovering Trek is provided by Five Year Mission. They're writing one song for each episode of the original Star Trek. Download their music at fiveyearmission.net. Discovering Trek, a Star Trek Discovery Companion, is a production of Trek Geeks. Executive producer Dan Davidson. For even more Star Trek discussion, check out the Trek Geeks podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and trekgeeks.com.